Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. If you're there, say amen. amen. Nice. And we're going to be going through 29, actually 30, sorry. All right, let's read. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable or guilty to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, Jesus is addressing, this is the first two points of the legal text that he's going to be addressing um, that we'll look at tonight and then possibly next week we'll catch up on the remainder. But these are ones that he's going to be interpreting for his, hearer, for his hearers. The first, let's look at verse 21 and 22 here with me. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So Jesus quotes the scripture saying that you have heard that it was said from old, is what some translations say, that the ancients, and even in Jesus' day, these, these were, you know, 15 to 2,000 years old, some of these, these texts that, were, that they were still studying and still teaching. And when the word would be brought forth, the scribe would stand up and give the reading, and they would also give some sort of interpretation. So what Jesus is doing isn't necessarily uh, anything different. They would say, you have heard it was said that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And he's referencing Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And that, that punishment was death. Stoning sometimes, most of the time, was to be stoned where they would take them and throw rocks at them. 
But Jesus continues on in verse 22 and says, but I say to you. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples, remember, the ones that had come to him on the mount, and he began to teach them, is what it tells us in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his followers, and he's going to elevate these laws. He's going to explain them. He's not, as we have already studied, here to um, get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus, the only man that could fulfill the law, is teaching how his disciples should live. Because we have to learn from the master, the one who can on how to do. And so he's speaking. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus is speaking with authority. I say to you, authority that rises above that of the law, but he takes the law and he applies it deeper than the outward observance. It wasn't just not murdering, that Jesus was going to discuss, but he was going to drive it deeper, and he applies that law to the heart. He's not talking differently than the other scribes would be, but uh, he doesn't speak like them. He's teaching from this place of, of even accomplishing the law. He's speaking with experience. He's speaking what it means as the one who knows what it means and will uphold it. This is something that whenever we as teachers or whenever we get up to share God's word, we're always dealing with our own inability to keep God's word. We have to, we have to pray and ask for forgiveness. We have to ask for God's cleansing to, to, to be ready to even deliver God's word. But Jesus, he comes out and he speaks as one who fulfills it completely. And so all the more to listen to him and to listen to his instruction. He is the creator of all things. He's the creator of us. And so to listen to our creator's words and instruction, all the more reason, reason to listen. But Jesus isn't really talking about murder, so to say, but anger and putting it on the level of murder. It says that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, when he says everyone, that means everyone. He's talking to the disciples, but this is a universal truth. This is something that God's law and God's word is true for everyone, whether they choose to follow it or not. They will be held accountable according to God's word and his righteousness. But he begins to say, everyone who is angry with his brother. See, anger, and what Jesus is saying is everyone that is provoked to anger by his brother. This is a, a wrath that has been allowed to well up in the heart of a person. Anger will also take the form of abusive language as Jesus paints the picture for us. And he speaks in a progression. You guys notice that? You see, it's, it starts with anger within the heart. And then it flows out of the mouth. And it begins to ridicule 
the brother, the fellow man. And then it turns into a maligning when he says, you fool. You see, when Jesus is talking about your brother, he's talking about your fellow human. He's also talking about, in a more literal sense, uh, for the Jews that were listening, other Jews, other Hebrews, other uh, Israelites. And that was not something that they would consider. As long as they didn't kill somebody, they could harbor all they want, all the anger that they wanted. But he calls them, he, the first thing that is said against their brother is, you good for nothing. And it meant empty-headed. It was ridiculing their intelligence. And then the next, the next thing said against their brother was the fool. It was scorn concerning his heart and his character, meaning that he, was, he wasn't worthy of any sort of respect. And you can see how this, this anger begins to dwell in a man's heart or a woman's heart towards another person that you actually start devaluing them. You devalue them and the image of God that they hold. And it starts with anger. It starts with wrath. It starts with that thing that they did wrong to you that you just can't let go. And it begins growing and growing, then it comes out verbally. And I think there's something to think about, you know, how, how anger can grab a hold of us and begin to cause us to uh, deform the way that we look at another person. I think it's interesting the rep repetition that Jesus uses about being guilty before the court. It doesn't matter the degree at which you are angry with your brother or your sister. It's all makes you guilty before the Lord. And there is a progression before the court, the judgment, the judgment seat, the righteous judgment of the Lord. And those around you could judge that this is wrong and guilty as well. The Supreme Court stood for the Sanhedrin. It was the, the elders of Israel that would make these uh, legal um, judgments according to God's word. They would, they would see God's word and they would hold the person accountable. But Jesus speaks about a fiery hell, a judgment. Now, this word fiery hell is more accurately the hell of fire, and it's the word Gehenna. I'm going to read a little snippet out of uh, commentary for you. The word Gehenna, rendered hell, occurs outside of the Gospels only in James chapter 3, verse 6. It is the Greek representative of the Hebrew Gehinnom, or in English, the Valley of Hinnom. A deep, narrow glen, glen sorry, in the south of Jerusalem, where, after the introduction of the worship of the fire gods by Ahaz, King Ahaz back in Israel's history, the idolatrous Jews sacrificed their children to Molech. 
You guys familiar with Moloch and what that was? Big brass god that they would heat the hands of. They'd heat them up with fire and then they would offer their child onto those hands. The most sickening type of thing you could think of. And Israel fell into that idolatry. And the Jews sacrificed their children to Molech. Josiah formally desecrated it that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Yes, Joshua, a man standing for righteousness. You can find that story in 2 Kings 23.10. After this, it became the common refuse place of the city into which the bodies of criminals, the carcasses of animals, and all sorts of filth were cast. From its depth and narrowness and its fire and ascending smoke, it became the symbol of the place of the future punishment of the wicked. As fire was the characteristic of the place, it was called the Gehenna of fire. It should be carefully distinguished from Hades, which is another word in the Greek that is used to, uh, that is translated hell often, or can be. It should be carefully distinguished from Hades, which is never used for the place of punishment, but for the place of the departed spirits. And so Hades, Jesus references Hades with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if we remember that. But uh, Gehenna is the word that Jesus uses most often when he is speaking of hell during his ministry. And it was this place of just of destruction and the place where the criminals, the everything that was gross and wicked would end up to be burned with fire. And so you get the picture a little bit more now. Somebody that's willing to, to degrade their fellow man out of anger shall be guilty enough to go into that place, to go where the most wicked of the wicked are. So we have this picture of anger that's quite stark. We can sometimes poo-poo anger off as though it's something we can, uh, we don't need to deal with, or we let it harbor, or we let it sit. But once we realize that it will actually um, come between us in our relationship with God if we allow it as believers to exist, this is why Jesus is teaching his disciples that it's not to be present within us. Jesus goes on in verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And we notice that the, the move that Jesus is teaching is reconciliation. The verb denotes mutual concession after mutual hostility. That's how it was defined. And we see here that Jesus is painting a picture of reconciliation before worship, before religion, before active worship. And we've got to understand that our relationship with God is partly contingent on how we treat others. 
Judaism itself would stress reconciliation between individuals. God would not accept an outward offering if one had oppressed or mistreated one's neighbor and did not make it right. And we could see this expressed in the Old Testament when God actually would say to Israel, I don't like your sacrifices. I don't, I hate your worship because you're not taking care of your neighbor. You can also see that when anger is present in the heart, God can't receive our worship or our offering. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 4 through 7 with me. Genesis 4, 4 through 7. We're going to go back to the beginning. The first account of anger and what it, what it produced. We read in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So we see that there's this, it, it, the anger that was produced in Cain over the, the regard that was shown his brother's sacrifice, it interrupted his ability to worship the Lord. We'll come back to this verse a little bit later. But if we look in Amos chapter 5, I could read this. So it's Amos. It might be a little bit harder to find for in the midst of the minor prophets. But it says, I hate, I reject your festivals. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, they were doing all the religious things, but righteousness and justice was left out of their activities, out of their engagement with their fellow man. Jesus is talking about being the one at fault or in debt to another as well as anger. Look at what it says. It says, if you, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. You see, it seems as though the, the responsibility actually falls on the disciple of Jesus that God is calling us to be the ones that pursue reconciliation. 
if your brother has something against you. The disciple is the one that is called to work to make things right. And this echoes what Jesus said in the first, uh, in his Beatitudes in verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers are the ones that are part of the family of God. And the proper gift to God is the reconciliation of the relationship, the unity in our relationships. That is a right offering to the Lord. And we can continue on worshiping him. And those sacrifices, those offerings of praise, and uh, they will be sweet to him. So we see that our relationships with others matter to the Lord greatly. Now, we move on, and, and Jesus talks about an opponent at law. Somebody who there's a lawful issue with in our lives. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent, in verse 25. With your opponent at law, while you are with him on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Make friends, he says, or go and agree with them. Find a solution before you get to the courthouse. Make a compromise with them. Settle the debt. Find a way to work this out with your opponent. Because the end, once you enter into the law situation, it, it, you can't be released from it. There will be no mercy in the court of law. Just raw justice. You did wrong, boom. And Jesus says, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. And so we see this really a warning against an unwillingness to settle a matter with another person. An unwillingness to go to that person and work it out. And, and what will happen if we are unwilling? It could be that it would be worse for us in the end if we choose to hold on to our anger or our broken relationship. And the only thing that keeps us from making that move is pride. We're to seek mercy from our opponent because there will be no mercy in the court. And Jesus emphasizes that the debt will be paid. If you look at Matthew 18, verse 34, let's turn over there real quick. Actually, let's go to, we'll read starting at verse 21, 18, verse 21. It says, then Peter came to him, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, 
but up to 70 times 7. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owes him, who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will, do, will also do the same to you if each does not forgive his brother from their heart, from your heart, sorry. We see multiple things here. We see that a lack of mercy, a mercy that we have received, not being shown to the one who has faulted against us. Is not doing what the Lord has called us to do. And the debt will be paid. I think the Lord hands us over to our sins sometimes. And he'll allow them to play out. He'll allow us to work in those situations in our own wisdom, in our own ways, and we will get the fruit of our labors might be destruction, might be ruin in a relationship, it might be uh, just a wandering, a waywardness. I'll give you what you want. This man did not want to show mercy to his fellow slave and exchange the freedom and the mercy he received for judgment and uh, receiving of the punishment that he had been released from. You see, anger is the equivalent to murder in Jesus' explanation of the law and comes with a sure judgment. Whether we as the disciples are angry with another person or the object of another's anger, whether someone has wronged us or we are at fault, we are called to be reconciled with that person. That is what Jesus' heart is when he's teaching this. We are not to be the stumbling block for another and to be aware of our own potential to harbor anger. Allowing anger or wrath towards another to remain in our lives will bring a judgment or a snare. And on the flip side, Jesus seems to tell us to make things right if somebody has something against us because they are in danger of judgment. 
Interesting. Jesus came down to make things right on our behalf because we were in danger of the judgment. He assumed all the wrong on himself that we might be free. And so sometimes it's going to cost us to do what our Savior has called us to do because it costs him everything for us. We don't want to be those that are stumbling others. You know, we are wondering, so how do we do this? What do we need to think through? Well, one, I think we can learn from Cain's story that sin is crouching at the door. It's, it's an image of an animal waiting to pounce. It's waiting for that moment that we, we give in to the anger. It's waiting for that, and then it jumps on us. It's ready. We got to recognize that we are susceptible to that, to sin. It's always waiting to take opportunity, sin is. But by the grace of God, we have the Holy Spirit and he equips us to respond rightly. That's where the disciple is different than the world. We are told that we need to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. And by this, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's Galatians chapter 5. And Jesus desires that we show the grace that we've been shown to others. Have you had somebody wrong you? Show the grace that God has shown you. Will it cost you? Absolutely. It cost our Savior everything to show grace. Are we the ones that have wronged another? Are the cause of somebody's anger? We need to go and ask for forgiveness. We need to work at the reconciliation. Will it cost us something? Most likely. But praise God that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins and we can work to be an example in the lives of another of the forgiveness of Jesus. Let's move on to the second law. And we'll hopefully move through this fairly quick. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So let's look at this. You have heard it said, Jesus is bringing about the commandment one more time. You've heard this before, it's been taught. But I say to you, you, my disciples, you listening, that everyone, this is a universal truth here, who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This look, it describes a longing look. They keep looking. And everyone who looks at the woman with lust for her is in reference also, in this context, to a married woman, hence committing adultery. And everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her describes the one looking to indulge their sexual appetite. Kenneth Wiest, in his Greek translation, translates this passage like this. 
everyone who is looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passions for her already committed adultery with her in his heart. It never needed to go physical. It was already happening. It already happened. This is the same as the commandment in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife. Jesus is expounding on the scriptures. And Jesus is forcing his hearer to internalize the commandments as he speaks to the heart. He's showing that God is able to judge the heart. He's able to look within the heart. And a heart that desires what belongs to others is guilty before him. You see, the heart is not just the center of the, bo- the blood circulation. That's not that's what it means in the Bible, but it's, not also, it's also meant other. It's not just the emotional part of man's nature. We know, oh, I'm cut to the heart emotional. But uh, here, the inner man includes his intellect, his affections, and his will, his drive, his desires. This word is exceedingly common in the New Testament and will repay careful study always. Jesus locates adultery in the eye and the heart before the outward act. Jesus is placing the responsibility for the sin in the one doing the lusting, not the person or the object. And this matters because sometimes you can hear the excuse, well, they're behaving like this, or they're dressing like this, and so they're causing me to stumble. No, that's, Jesus says, no, it's you. You're the one. And that very well could be true that they're doing that, that they're dressing a certain way to grab attention or acting or behaving, but the responsibility in Jesus' eyes is square on the one person doing the lusting on the eyes. I want to read this little passage here about lust. It's written well. And so, um, lust is antithetical to true love. It dehumanizes another person into an object of passion, leading us to act as if the other were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. Fueled by selfish passion, Adultery violates the sanctity of another person's being and relationships. Love, by contrast, seeks what is best for a person, including strengthening their marriage. Adultery usually involves considerable rationalization, justifying one's behavior as necessary or loving. But we're in love. I love them. But lust is the mother of adultery, the demonic force that allows human beings to justify exploiting one another sexually, at the same time betraying the most intimate of commitments where trust ought to abide secure, even if it can't flourish nowhere else. Lust demands possession, love values, respects, and seeks to serve the other person with what is genuinely good for them. Lust is always incompatible with acknowledging God as the supreme desire of our hearts because it is contrary to his will. See why I wanted to read that? 
very powerful, very thoughtful. You see the contrast of lust and love. One desires selfishly, the other love, it gives of itself. And Jesus calls us to self-control and faithfulness to our covenant, uprightness in our relationships. So let's look at Galatians again. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 17. Oh man, that bookmarker went. There we go. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So as the disciple of Christ, the one whose Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit indwells us as disciples, We see that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. And that is on purpose. If the flesh went along, or if the spirit went along with the flesh, it doesn't make sense, right? It's supposed to be separate. But the spirit is in there to guide us away from the things of the spirit, or the things of the flesh, sorry. Look at verse 18. But if you were led by the spirit, you were not under the law. Okay, that we've been, Jesus is dialoguing about the law. Jesus is telling us about the law. He's explaining it. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. All could be under the title of lust here. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things... And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look, that's, that, that's, the, that's the bunch that's not inheriting the kingdom of God, that will not enter the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in us is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, here it is. You're not under the law. There is no law against those things. Why would there be? Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I believe Paul has just taken Jesus' words and he is just restating them. Look at what Jesus goes on to say here in verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Interesting. Remember what Paul said in verse 24 of chapter 5 in Galatians? Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. 
You see, Jesus is dealing, wants the disciple to deal radically with sin in our lives. And he's going to use imagery that expresses that. If something is causing you to stumble, if you are being caused to stumble. Now, this word stumble describes, um, I thought this was really interesting. It's an image. It's the stick in a trap that when the, where the bait is placed. You guys ever seen those kinds of things set up or set up a trap or a mouse trap? It's that little portion where the bait is set on so that when the mouse or the animal grabs that bait, the trap releases. It springs up and it shuts the trap at the touch of an animal, the slightest touch. That's what it means to stumble or offend. Hence, generally, a snare, a stumbling block. If your eye or your hand serves as an obstacle or trap to make you fall in your moral walk, get rid of it. Everyone must immediately see that the eye to be plucked out of is the eye of cons- I can barely read this word, concupiscence. And the hand to be cut off is a hand of violence and vengeance. That is, these passions are to be checked and subdued. Let the conflict cost us what it may. That was out of an ultimate cross-reference. Let the conflict cost us what it may. These vivid pictures are not to be taken literally, but powerfully pleading to us for self-control. The disciple of Jesus is to deal radically with sin, anger, and lust. If it's left unchecked, it's a disease that will destroy our life in Christ. It'll cut us off from fellowship. It will ruin the relationships around us, the relationships closest to us. It will alienate us from fellowship within the congregation of Jesus's disciples, his followers, his church. And not only that, it will continue to pull us further and further away from him and our sor- the source of our life. I couldn't help but think through the imagery that I shared uh, a couple Sundays ago with Psalm 1, you know, uh, you know, the um, blesses a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor, or nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and then he meditates on it day and night. And that he's meditating on that law. He will be like a tree planted by rivers or streams of water, a tree planted, pulling up nutrients, whose uh, produces its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. You think about somebody who allows these these things to maintain in their life is like a plant that's diseased that it starts to take over and it can't pull its nutrients from the water anymore. Its leaf begins to wither like blight and starts drying up the, the tree and it's not being fruitful as it once was. It's a slow process especially if we look around now and we see trees that you can almost see half of the tree still green and the other half dying. It's, the disease is already set in and it's begun to destroy. And the tree can't be saved after one point. It will destroy. 
And so Jesus, as he's explaining these things, he's driving home this point to the heart of the disciple as we close. It's the heart where these things begin. The anger, the vengeance against another person, the lust, it begins in here. It comes through here, through the eyes. And so, as a disciple, we're to take care of our heart and look at it through the lens of Scripture. We see Scripture telling us the, con- the contents of our heart and the, and the condition of our heart. And we let the Holy Spirit put His finger on the thing that God is wanting to work in our lives if it's reconciliation, I think in both of these things it is. Reconciling the way that I am treating my fellow brother or sister in anger or in how I'm viewing them. It's all found and contained in my heart. And so as we close tonight, we'll, we'll sing a song. And I, I, I almost think that I want to close, at least I'm going to keep closing with this song each week. Because it's uh, yet not I, but Christ in me. I closed with it last week. And um, it just points our, our eyes to Jesus. It reminds us that it's him who has redeemed us. It's, it reminds us of, of him that will do this work in us, giving us Um, just hope because of who he is and what he has done and that he will do it through us or in us. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for tonight and this time we've had in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would, um, Lord, just search our hearts, Lord, as even I've asked over and over again this week as I've studied. Lord, to... To sit before your word, Lord, is, a, is an uncomfortable thing, Lord, but it is so right and so true, Lord. We want to hear it, Lord. We want to be, Lord, in, in more right relationship with you. And we, we thank you for your blood that has, has been shed for us for our forgiveness of our sins, Lord, where we have fallen short, Lord. But Lord, we also desire to do what makes you happy, Lord, to follow through with your word. Lord, we just um, ask that you would just continue to speak to us, Lord, this week as we spend time in your word, Lord. If there's someone we need to go and be reconciled with, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would show us how to do that. Lord, I pray, Lord, if we've been struggling with lust or coveting, Lord, another, Lord, that you would first forgive us, Lord, but that you would change our eyes, Lord, to to see people how you see them. Lord, to change our affections, Lord, that our covenant is with you, Lord. Our eyes are yours. Our heart is yours. Help us to crucify the, the flesh, Lord, as Paul wrote. 
but to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. We thank you for this night and this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.